introduce my friend to you, uh, Troy Morton. And Troy, I, I, I forgot to get a bio from you. And, and so uh, can I just start by saying he's my friend? Yeah. Yeah, so he's my friend. He's been pastoring down at Santa Cruz for um, a long time. Not as long as I've been pastoring here, but a long time. Um, and, uh, and, and faithfully doing so, I hear regularly from different people down there how much they love their pastor. Um, and we are, we, we kind of have a red phone to one another. We both, we have called one another many times as pastors with like, um, can I run something by you? <laughs> and so he's been, a, he's been a great friend. Actually, he doesn't know how encouraging he's been to me in the last uh, series I preached through. When I preached through the Gospel of John, I got it through about half of it or so. And I have a, te- I, I have a tendency when I am preparing sermons um, to do a number of things, a number of commentaries, working through word studies, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then also I usually try to find somebody that's preached through whatever I'm preaching and just hear them, just listen to what's going on and stuff. And there were several times I was like, I'm not sure what to do this passage. And I stumbled about halfway through the Gospel of John um, that, that Troy had preached through John several years ago. And so um, he doesn't know how many times you were benefited from the fact that I listened to some of his sermons on, on John. But thank you. Thank, they all thank you for that, Troy. Some of the best stuff right, right there from you. So... Um, I don't know if you're going to explain what you do on... Are you going to explain what you do normally in the month of October? I don't know. I'm excited to hear what I do. It looks like um, uh, he regularly takes the month of October and he preaches passages of Scripture, but he emphasizes the Reformation. He emphasizes the history of faithful Christians who have come before us. He's a great historian. He's a great storyteller. I I don't want to put you up too high here. And <laughs> he's an okay historian, okay speaker. Glad you came. I, I find him really fun to listen to and, um, and learn a lot from him. And so that's why we reached out to him and said, hey, would you come and minister to our people here uh, on a number of, on, on some different topics? And we talked about it, and he's going to explain more about what is going on. He's br- here with his beautiful wife, Brittany. They have a number of faithful children. Four. Yes. Um, and... Uh, they are a wonderful, wonderful people. So would you please welcome Troy Martin. Well, that anyone would come on a Friday night to hear history lectures amazes me. Maybe you didn't know it was history lectures, and I'll see if anybody walks to the door real fast, but here we go. Um, is this my water? Is that- Okay, thank you. Good. I'll need that. Um, I, I do have to apologize. I, I, I'm, I'm not good at traveling, and uh, I printed everything out at the hotel, and the, the ink cartridge was going out, so I'm going to, hopefully, I have most of this memorized. My wife doesn't like me preaching in glasses. Well, actually, I've never done it, but she doesn't like me wearing glasses. Because I look old. Um, here we go. Well, grateful to be with you all. Um, thank you, Dave, and, and uh, it's good to be with you. Um, I haven't been in Seattle now for, oh gosh, I was trying to think about it, I think 15 years, maybe even more, maybe way more. Um, it's been a while. I had a wonderful drive one time here uh, through Spokane to here, and I just remember that being some of the most beautiful road I've ever been on, um, And uh, but it's good to be in Washington. I don't actually leave California very much, um, uh, because I just don't leave places very much. Um, I'm pastor in Santa Cruz, California. I have been there for, uh, oh gosh, 20 years uh, at Santa Cruz. And uh, my wife, Brittany, is here. And we only have four faithful children. The other ones aren't faithful, but four <laughs> children. And uh, 
but it's good to be. I have to admit, um, I, I just, I don't leave the pulpit. Um, lo and behold, I'm here. Ty asked, and I'd probably do anything for Dave Hatcher if he asked, um, maybe even get out of my rut. Um, and uh, I was even tempted to say no, but I went to my session and they thought that I should go and, and, and do this. And I was thinking later after I was coming that, that uh, maybe they were just thinking, you know, that guy is getting a little cabin fever. <laughs> so get him out of here um, and uh, give him some fresh air. So I want to say if, if these talks go well, well, praise God for that. And if they don't go well, I just want to thank you all for taking one for the team and taking me out for a walk. Um, noble bunch up here in Seattle. So Ty asked if I would do a history conference of sorts, something on early America founding principles, and I'm happy to do that. Um, I've been a history teacher for 20 years and a minister of the word for seven, uh, so I get to marry the two things that I like doing most together uh, tonight and, and tomorrow morning. So we're going to do four talks in all that time, and the goal is to deal with uh, some spiritual and biblical pedigree of various concepts that are part of uh, the American uh, governmental anatomy. Um, we'll trace the lineage of notions often uh, thought to be uniquely American or just generally secular political science. If, if at this point you're saying, is that what we're here for? Okay, sorry. But uh, there, there's only a few things I do, um, and this is one of them. But I hope to show in all of this that some of these things uh, were won, some of these concepts we have in our head were won out of the spiritual battles for the kingdom of God in the Reformation and in the subsequent uh, what's called wars of religion and, and then later in the Great Awakening. Um, things obtained from Scripture by godly men and women applying the Word of God to the challenging providences of their day. Um, so uh, this isn't uh, then several talks on history, but actually several meditations on how uh, the Word of God made our world, or at least some of the ways we think about it. And one more thing I'm going to do. Uh, not only is this a history conference of sorts, and not only is this a Bible study a bit, uh, but we'll also take each session, and at the end I'm going to end with just a few exhortations or encouragements, um, because well, I'm a teacher and I can't get out of the classroom. When my church um, asked me to be pastor, they knew they were getting a history teacher. And so each October, we do All Saints October, as we call it. And I just get to be a history teacher for a while. And uh, as I tell my classes and, and as I tell my church, uh, knowledge isn't amoral. Uh, every truth should cause a response. Uh, everything understood should cause action somehow. Uh, so remember the Proverbs that say, uh, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, right? And if you remember, uh, prudence is uh, uh, action applied to life or, or wisdom applied to life. Uh, so uh, we're going to try and do that. Uh, wisdom knows how to use truth. Uh, wisdom knows how to act on understanding and, and not just, uh, uh, and not to be able to act on truth is not really knowing a truth. Um, so uh, here we go, we're gonna get into it and you're going to get a, a little bit of everything and we'll, we'll see if this all works out or not. Um, so our first topic this day is on a concept called, uh, and, and each one is going to build on the other and this is, our, this is our lead into it, but today is on a concept and you are really in a government class tonight, but this is the concept of consent of the governed. Uh, and to understand the origins and history of this idea, um, I'm gonna go back in history pretty far. Uh, but I want to start today with where that history went to, 
uh, to make this idea. And you don't have to look up in scripture with me, but I'm going to open uh, and do a little section in Exodus uh, tonight. I'm going to be in Exodus 19 and go from here and, and uh, explain how actually a time period looking at this verse and, and a few chapters later uh, well, changed our world permanently. So let me ask God for a blessing and, uh, and to bless our time and let's get into it. Father, thank you for your word, and Father, we need your Holy Spirit to understand it well, so we ask you to send your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and Father, may these things be more than words, but may they get into our hearts. Would you write them there, and would we meditate well on these things, that we might put our roots down into it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so here we go. Uh, verse uh, 1. Uh, I don't know if you have a Bible translation preference, but I'm doing New King James Version. So, uh, In the third month... Uh, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't it beautiful? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom. Note that. Of priests and a holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And I, I can't not just do a little commentary on that. So we're about 50 days out of Egypt at this point. The lunar months are slightly shorter than our months. So this is about 50 days out, uh, which in Greek is the word Pentecost. Uh, and, and after they left 50 days before with Passover. So you can see the beginning of, the, uh, of Israel's calendar showing up here. That calendar isn't, hasn't been given at this point. Um, but this is why, also, interestingly enough, why Pentecost is the Old Testament celebration of giving the law, um, and in the New Testament, the giving of the Spirit. In both cases, uh, God has fire come down, first here on top of a mountain, and, and then later in Acts on top of his people. Uh, the other thing to note here uh, is that this is the first time in the Bible, and this is something really worth noting, this is the first time um, the Bible uses the word kingdom uh, with referring to his people. I will make a kingdom. He's used covenant before now. We get that in, in, in Genesis. But now he's using kingdom. And he is using, among other things, a sociopolitical term. God is giving a law. He's organizing a nation. He's making a calendar. He's planning festivities. He's dealing with jurisprudence on property and marriage. Um, this, is, this is a kingdom. Um, and in the New Testament, Jesus will later say that he's taking the kingdom from Israel, uh, Matthew 21, 43, and giving it to uh, another to the church, a point um, made again in Hebrews 12 when he says, for you have come to a better mountain, uh, Hebrews 12, 18, and receiving a more enduring kingdom. Because that's what happens at mountains. Kingdoms are made. All right. Um, uh, and, and so here we are, God's kingdom making, God's nation building and verse seven. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. 
Now, if we buy, as the reformers did, that this is God's section on kingdom building, um, then perhaps you'll see how here in Exodus 19, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, perhaps you'll see how, how this altered political theory after the 1600s um, permanently. For during the Reformation, uh, specifically during what is called the French Wars for Religion, uh, this, what was, what was powerfully noticed here was that as God was making a kingdom, he had those that would be part of the kingdom agree to it. Did you notice that? He, he had them agree to it. Uh, they, Moses brings down the words, explains it all, and the people say, we will do that. There, there is nothing like this in the ancient Near East. There's nothing like this. Equal powers could come to terms, but greater powers forced their will on lesser powers. Um, God's never asked, asked anything. You know, they don't ask. Uh, yet in God's, uh, Jehovah's nation making, he does something completely different. And from this, the, the whole understanding of, you know, frankly, let's just move ahead, constitutional government through the rule of law by consent of the governed was born, as this was studied. A covenant is being made, a law is being given, but God attends, in the process of it, to Israel's assent. Now, this is repeated again, if you go on a little bit later into Exodus 24, it happens twice there, but I'm just going to read one section. This is where Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu go with Moses up onto the mountain. Um, that's where it's going to happen. And then it says this in verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his judgments. He's about to invite some people up to have that meal on the mountain where they look up and they can see to heaven. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord had said to us we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So we have uh, there again twice. It actually happens three times. This, uh, a third time in that chapter where the people again say they're going to do this. Three times. So again, what happened in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 changed the world since the 1500s and beyond. And that change started largely in France by a group called the Huguenots. Uh, I hope you know what they are. I'm going to explain a little bit about it. Um, but let me go back for that. Here's what happened. In the 1500s, as the Reformation came to France from Germany, you remember Martin Luther and all that, uh, the throne of France was very unconcerned about what was going on. Uh, estimates uh, place about 10% of France becoming Protestant during the Lutheran Reformation. Soon, nobility, even princes of the blood, uh, began reading the Bible, hearing sermons, not going to masses. And it was that point when... when uh, princes of the blood, the royal family, uh, started getting interested that, that things actually changed in France. For, for peasants in France, didn't matter, but once nobility got involved, well, nobility has military at its disposal. Uh, so uh, the French throne started paying attention uh, to the Reformation. For if Bible reading grew among peasants, that's unimportant, but growing among royals, well, that could be a tinderbox for potential civil war, and French history has a lot of it. Um, and now we're getting something that's, that's not controlled by the throne near the places of power. So, regent to the throne for her underaged son, Queen Catherine de' Medici, uh, made the Edict of Saint-Germain. 
A document that made no one happy, managed to, just like many politics, uh, nobody was happy. Uh, the ultra-Catholics, that was a group in France, uh, thought it was way, way, way too liberal, and the Protestants thought it was way, way, way too tyrannical. And it certainly stoked things up. For in the Edict of Saint-Germain, Protestants could worship, thus making the Roman Catholics angry, yet they were not allowed to worship in any city centers. No cities. It had to stay rural. Uh, and thus, this, this was ghettoizing uh, Protestants in, in France. All political centers, after all, uh, uh, were in cities. So if you can't do it in a city, then, then this, this, the Bible has to stay out of the politics. Makes sense? And, and, if, and all the universities were in the cities, so therefore no, no, no um, university education could get close to the Reformation. So without saying so, um, uh, Protestants were being removed from places of influence in France in a slow process of uh, uneducating them and um, making them impromotable. Uh, there was only one defiance uh, left to Protestants after the Edict of Saint-Germain. Uh, they were worshipping in the countryside, but there was only one uh, defiance left for them in cities. Uh, for while the Edict did not allow preaching in cities, the Edict said nothing about singing Makes sense. Oh, and, and singing scripture um, in the cities. And so Protestants sang psalms. This became the big point. In places of work, they would sing psalms loudly. In places, on the city streets, they would sing psalms loudly. So several rural uh, towns made laws against psalm singing, but it didn't work because a lot of the Catholic liturgy still had psalms, so they couldn't outlaw it, and so um, they were stuck. Uh, there was complaints in some uh, orders that there's... A good, good history book if you ask me later on it, but um, about uh, uh, neighbors complaining about hearing psalms through their walls at the time. In fact, in, in uh, French, to sing psalms, uh, chanter les psalms, uh, became a euphemism for becoming Protestant. So if you, know, if you want to talk about crazy Uncle Harry uh, becoming a Protestant, you say, oh, he's, he's singing psalms, um, and then and everybody knew what was going on. And by the way, it's one of the theories where uh, the word Huguenot comes from. Uh, there are a lot of theories um, out there. I, I uh, I take the oldest one, uh, written uh, during the generation of when it was, but it was written by a, by a, by a German. But uh, there, is, there, was a, there was a ghost, um, a, a set of ghosts uh, called the Ugon, the Ugon um, uh, and they were kind of like the French banshee. They, they scared people by the loud wailing they made, and so uh, my understanding of Huguenot would be it was the, a reference to their psalm singing. Makes sense? They, they were the wailing banshees. So that was, what, that was what was going on in France. Uh, psalm singing grew up as those political centers diminished. Uh, meanwhile, the fiercer Catholics, at this time called the ultra-Catholics, um, were not content with the Edict of Saint-Germain. Uh, it was too liberal for them. Uh, getting Bible reading out of Paris really seemed to them like a band-aid on a cancer. Uh, Huguenots were not quieting down. They were not going away. Um, they, they, they seemed to be more rowdy since all the song singing was going on. So, uh, so Huguenots needed to be expunged, according to the Duke of Guise and his whole house. So in 1562, uh, in a legal worship service uh, of 600, uh, the Duke of Guise uh, happened to be walking at night um, when he heard it. And according to him, uh, in the middle of nowhere, went to check out a barn, found 600 people worshiping there, and he killed them. And he claimed he was innocently attacked while he was just walking through a forest at night in the middle of nowhere. Um, but he massacred them, and, and, and uh, the king bought it, but the massacres multiplied. 
throughout this period, the next three years and beyond, but the next three years, the stories are amazingly painful. Uh, to my mind, perhaps the worst are the riots of Toulouse, uh, where about 5,000 Huguenots were in the city when mobs in the city just started beating them. And they gathered, uh, there were several reformed churches in town, and they all went to the city hall and barricaded themselves inside and had to stay in there for several weeks, uh, two in fact, a couple weeks, um, until their ammunition was running low and their food was running low. At this point, the city officials agreed to a truce. Uh, the Huguenots, uh, if they would put down their arms, um, leave them in the Capitol building, and then walk out of Toulouse, leave it permanently, a safe passage was assured to them. So starting at 8 p.m. on May 9th, 1562, uh, the three Reformed churches uh, began filing out of town uh, through the only exit offered them. And it was so bottlenecked that, that uh, many were having to wait behind and also they were, they, they were bringing uh, furniture and stuff because they were leaving permanently. Um, so it was so bottlenecked that, that the other uh, Huguenots went to the roof of the city capital and they began uh, singing psalms uh, to the, their departing friends as they went out. Among those sung was Psalm 68, which you did an amazing job singing all the verses. That's actually my first time singing all the verses. Way to go, Seattle. But Psalm 68 uh, was a Huguenot favorite um, and would be for many years to come. It has ever been uh, that since uh, these years, the 1560s, it, since then it has... Psalm 68 has been called the battle hymn of the Huguenots. Um, and for uh, the, that day and the next, it, among a number of other psalms, was sung out of the rooftops over the city. Uh, but once the last of the Reformed church, uh, churches uh, left the city hall, um, as if it seems planned, though um, when later royal investigation happened, it was denied, but uh, it, uh, a whole bunch of alarms began sounding around Toulouse. Uh, large mobs formed, ran out of the churches with weapons in their hand, and began chasing down and massacring the unarmed Protestant men, women, and children uh, that were at the tail end. Some got away, but it is estimated that as many as 3,000 of the 5,000 refugees were killed on that day. And their firearms were back in City Hall. Many stories are similar. Uh, some uh, with larger numbers as the years went by. And at this point, there was nothing to do that they knew of, that's like had not been before. While the only option seemed to flee or to stay and die, it is believed that a total of 200,000 Huguenots left France. Most of them, uh, their number went to Switzerland. Switzerland uh, spoke French, at least in the West. Uh, but about 50,000 of them went to England, uh, Winston Churchill's mother was a descendant of those Huguenots. Uh, but it should be remembered, uh, many of them stayed in France. And they were the daring ones who didn't run. Um, and, and those ones that stayed behind, they're the ones that gave us our greatest legacy in all of this. For in the middle of the dangers of those days, they began to look with an intensity really never done before in the history of Christendom to the Bible's teachings on government and covenants and kingdoms. And three documents were produced at this time. In 1573, uh, Franco Gallia uh, was made. It's a look at France's constitutional origin 
uh, which was overturned by Louis XI, uh, noting that laws uh, in France had antedated kings. And thus, uh, laws are higher than kings. There's another of other things that, did, I don't know how your French history is, but that kings used to be put up on shields when they were the Franks and carried around, and thus the people had to support the king. A lot of arguments that, that there's something beneath and above kings. 1574, four, Theodore Beza, the reformer, uh, who spent uh, as much time in France as in Geneva, uh, wrote the, the right of magistrates, uh, arguing that lower civil authorities... Uh, must obey um, the law, even if that means disobeying higher civil authorities. Uh, in, and this is how you can please God. The, the, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, it's sometimes called. But in 1579, uh, the anonymous, uh, life was a little harder then, Vindiciae contra tyrannus uh, was written. The Vindication Against Tyranny. Now that study was the crowning study and it ended up changing everything in much the way that a mustard seed changes everything by starting small but just never stopping. It just grew and went, the arguments in there. Uh, my, my students in our in government class have to read it, um, and it's a, it's a moving book. For the Vindicii is largely a comprehensive look at every reference to the word king, to the word kingdom, and to covenants, uh, and how they were formatted uh, that, that are in the Bible. Um, all organized around just four questions in the whole book. And while it is expansive, I mean, the, the Vindicii talks about everything, it's basically built uh, at the very start on just two verses, the ones we read, I read to you, uh, Exodus 19 and, and Exodus 24. And it was noticed first by them that, that three times in the book of Exodus, following God's announcement that he was going to make a kingdom out of Israel, uh, God gets the people's acceptance to live by the terms of the covenant. Each of the three times, Israel says, yes, we will do these things. And it seems that, that God is waiting for this odd job of, of Moses going up, hearing something, Moses coming down. It's, it's not moving fast. He waits for these things. God waited for the people's consent. And that, and that should shock you. I mean, think back on Exodus 19, which I read. I mean, that, that God... The Lord of heaven and earth that, that makes men and women, makes their wills. Uh, the greatest power there is uh, who could make anyone do anything he wanted, uh, can control men's heartbeats, can, can, uh, does most of what he does without permission, right? He gives us life. He does, nobody asks. He, he gives us faith. Nobody asks. He, he ends our lives. Nobody asks. But when making a government that God did not force, did not coerce, he did not use uh, his superintending sovereignty, he did not use the armies of heaven to compel Israel into a new servitude, but instead he, he has Israel, waits upon Israel's consent as he makes a kingdom with them. Something no king before uh, this had ever done. And that, and, and that realization uh, by these, this study, uh, that, that, that divine humility is one of the key forces when making a kingdom. Uh, that, that shaped oh so much as it was explored by the church in the persecutions of the 1500s. I mean, it shaped uh, our modern government. For an idea began to be appreciated, though it had always been there, uh, that God makes nations by the consent of the governed. 
uh, that God binds the governments he makes uh, to, and we'll talk about this next, to a rule of law. Here, here's the law. And this changed everything. And just to explain how far this went, this idea, because it really shows up first here, uh, 1572, but explain how far this goes. If you look right now, if you go home after this and you go to Google and you look up uh, the UN website, um, you will see, by the way, I think the UN is a terribly insalubrious institution. Um, but still, if you look on the UN, uh, it states that uh, the governments of the world need to be, and it says right there, by the consent of the governed. It's stated by the UN. Well, secularism didn't create that concept on the UN's website. A Bible study from 1572 uh, on Exodus 19 did. And, and it... Uh, was born powerfully from that moment, and, and it just kept going throughout history. I mean, I mean 100 years after the Vindicii, um, John Milton, uh, who, who read it, wrote in England uh, when explaining the Bible's teachings, he said, the power of kings and magistrates is committed to them in trust from the people. 100 years after that, still in line with this Huguenot Bible study, the declaration of this country uh, states this, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just power from the consent of the governed. And there it was. And people say, but Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian. He's a deist. Okay, if I agree with you, what does that have to do with anything? He wasn't writing his own ideas down when he was writing that. He even says so. Because in writing to his own government as a representative, uh, encouraging them to accept um, the writings and, and, what, and the Declaration of Independence, he says that what Congress did was, quote, this is what he writes, we were not trying to find out new principles or new arguments, but we are harmonizing with the sentiments of the day. Do you get what he's saying? If this deist penned the Declaration of Independence, he did it, he says, not with his eyes on what he thought, but with his eyes, with his eyes on the Vindicii, which, had, which in itself had, had its eyes on Exodus 19. And, and by the way, that's not an assumption I'm making because John Adams wrote in his book, The Defense of the Constitution, uh, that the Vindicii was, quote, the key work from England used in making our government. Well, Adams is wrong because the Vindicii was not from England, uh, but he was right that our form of government was based on the lessons in Exodus 19 and 24, thanks to the Huguenots that they wrote in the Vindicii. So, so just understand that we have far more, uh, we got far more from the French than we thought. I mean, they are the first ones to say that a, a covenant, a constitution, is entered into by consent and when ratified, is binding on all participants and governed by laws. I mean, that observation gleaned and given to the world has shaped all Western polit political science since. All of it. You know, though this is a wisdom of Scripture and the heritage of the church, yet many are the secular militants who deny this, and, and many are the Christians that go along with it. Uh, formed in 1976, um, with one of its greatest spokesmen being Ronald Reagan's son, was the Institute Freedom From Religion. Uh, that foundation writes on its webpage um, this, uh, this ahistorical tidbit, that the Declaration of Independence, quote, 
was based on the idea that governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, which is contrary to the biblical concepts of the rule of divine authority. For Thomas Jefferson, is, its author was a deist. Well, there you go. Uh, stated in black and white on the ones and zeros on, the, on your, your uh, computer screen, that, that is absolutely a historical hooey. It's written there. I mean, writing something like that is, is incredible. It's a bit like saying that, that circles are a funny triangle or that, you know, fire is so hot it freezes. You know, something just oxymoronic pontifications. And yet, as absurd as the sentiment is, it, it's stuck, and it's stuck even with churches. An evangelical newsletter I got a number of years ago said this, in America, we're told that our leaders derive their power from the consent of the governed, but that is an unbiblical concept. Or a Catholic publication that somebody gave me said this, the myth of the consent of the governed is sociopolitical confusion that Catholics need to avoid. Or even a very famous reformed writer whose book is on my shelf says this, when Jesus told Pilate you would have no authority if it had not been given you from above, he was denying the consent of the governed. Uh, so what is the point of all of this historical story I, I just told you, and, and why are we launching out from this point into everything that Ty gave me to talk about? So, so here is the point uh, where, uh, real fast, I, I, I want to uh, make application and not just whine in front of you, <laughs> which has too often become an Olympic sport that, that conservatives take gold in. Um, but, you know, whining achieves nothing. Oh, yeah. I'm a teacher, so when a teacher puts a red pen on a math paper, the point isn't so that the kid will whine about it, but that they'll make changes, right? When the mechanic tells you that your engine has problems, it's not so that you'll bellyache, but it's so that you might fix it and pay him. Uh, when the prophets in the Old Testament pointed out that there are national sins, it wasn't so that the people of Israel would grouse, but so that they would repent and do something different. So the point in all of this is, well, it's the same rule here. Uh, these things we're talking about should make us prudent. Well, we should know what to do with them. And the first one is this. Uh, the first thing of importance, the first thing I want to say in all our talks is this one. Know your biblical heritage. Know your biblical heritage. One of Western civilization's problems right now uh, is that it has forgotten where it got most of its ideas. As an aside, if you've been able to read, this is nothing to do with consent of the governed, but if you've been able to read this year, Vishal Maglawadi's book, This Book Made Your World, is an excellent case of this. I mean, that book is just amazing because you have this Indian who's looking at the, at the coming from a Hindu society in a Muslim town, and he's looking at what Western civilization has, and he says, you don't realize all of that comes from the Bible, you know, all of it, and he does a great job of showing it. I mean, Western civilization has forgotten where it got its ideas from. And our country is, is just as much in the thick of this. And we have a rich biblical heritage. But for all of it, we are living on fumes because we don't see that what we have is a biblical heritage. We, we seem to be at a funny place in our history where we like fruit but don't remember how to farm. Right? We, we, we like burgers but we don't remember how to hunt. Uh, we, we like things, but we don't know where we got them from. Wasn't that a great idea? I wonder where it came from. Uh, secular, we think, often, 
that they just started in America. And what I hope to show is, actually, uh, of all the talks I do, not one of these people is actually an American, really. So none of these things started here. Uh, Secularists deny that, our, that much of our freedoms come from biblical foundations, and Christians are helping them deny it. But the problem in all of this is that the blessings don't work outside of a Christian understanding, a Christian culture. Secularism didn't produce them. If, it's why, as the U.S. grows more secular, we're losing our blessings. If our blessings were from secularism, they would be growing stronger right now as we secularize. Uh, but these things are disappearing because they didn't come from secularism. So the first order is to understand where they came from. That's, that's a really important order. Why, where did we get that idea from? Was it just created you know, in, in New York or Philadelphia? And one of the best ways to do this is read books. Uh, make sure uh, you, you, you're studied on these things. Make sure you've, you've explored them. It's amazing how much is still out there uh, that, that just isn't explored. Make, make sure you read books. Know your heritage. Uh, make sure that your kids go to schools that read books. That, that's actually rare in our age. Um, especially books that are rich and, and good at showing the origins of things. Now, for the first order of business is to undertake, in all of this, is to understand the biblical origin of our heritage. So read and study and glean the richness that, is the, that the kingdom of God has accumulated for 200 years and put on this wonderful table uh, that is just bending under its weight. We're so wealthy. Uh, look, and, and, and if I can say a side thing, I have no idea if this has anything to do with your community, and maybe it doesn't, but... Um, Make sure that if you go to a, if you give your kids a classical education, that you don't spend all your time in the Greeks and the Romans. One of the bugaboos of classical education. Make sure you read medievals and moderns. You know the time when Christians were active in thinking, because mainly most of the richness that we get from a classical tradition is as the Christians digested it and started to saying, "But how does this work with Christ and the gospel?" Well, there, I like that Pentecostal. Where are you? You're great. We will be better uh, at guarding our blessings as we know their origins. And one other thing, and this is the second application today. Uh, I'm encouraging you to, to know your biblical heritage, but, I, but the real reason I say that one is because there is a danger in distancing yourself from your biblical heritage, uh, being ignorant of it. And you might not know, that, that, or you might know, that France is anything but a bastion of rich, reformed faith. Uh, when I lived there in the 2000s, 1% uh, of the population was Protestant, and about 1% of that population actually believed anything. Makes sense. Uh, most of the Protestants in France, uh, their, their ancestors were Huguenots, and they just feel loyalty to their family. But you go to most Reformed churches in France, and nobody believes there. They're just, they're just terrible places. Uh, most of the faithful churches are actually West Africans um, who have come up. If you go out on a Sunday in Paris or in the south where I lived, um, the only people out are West Africans. Um, it's, just, it's just not faithful anymore. Uh, the Reformed faith didn't, didn't survive well in France. Uh, and you might say, uh, we might say without too much exaggeration, that France became the birthplace of secularism. Uh, the French Revolution, obviously the birth of secular revolutions. Uh, France had the world's first secular education um, by Jules Ferry. And in 2004, maybe you know this, uh, but France changed its national motto. Uh, you know the old French national motto, right? 
liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Well, it was added in 2004. Now, now is liberté, égalité, fraternité, and loïcité. Loïcité is secularism. I mean, it's now part of the national motto in France. So what happened? You know, how did a country like France that saw, fought so, oh gosh, so long and hard, and, by the way, which God honored as the birthplace of some of our greatest biblical insights into government, how did that become what it did in the modern world? How did it go so bad? After all, you should ask yourself, as I always do, um, doesn't God honor the work of those who love him, despite the dangers of the day? And the answer to this is a sad one, and it requires me to tell just a little bit more history. And it has to do with the fact that you can't distance yourself from a biblical heritage. See, a number of historians have pointed out uh, that the Huguenots nearly won uh, the wars of religion. During the wars of religion, the Huguenots began uh, to just seem absolutely unbeatable. And that's not to say there weren't terrible fights. I mean, there were horrible massacres and vile, vile evils were done against them. Just terrible things. But despite it all, things constantly were frustrating their persecutors. And inevitably, uh, the, the, this unbelievable help just kept showing up for, for the Protestants. Until actually, in, in the whole providence of things, a, a Protestant king was being put on the front throne of France. Uh, good King Henry, yeah, he's called Perhaps you know his story, perhaps you know the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, terrible thing, and, and to save his neck, uh, King Henry became Catholic in it. Um, and that's bad, but that's not actually where the problem began. Uh, some, some shallow histories usually put that as the problem. He was just unfaithful when, it, when he could have lost his life, but that's not it at all, because he actually lost his life three times before that, the various battles. I mean, this is just a brave man. But the problem happened before that because as God moved this, this reformed prince into place for his church against all odds, against all the conniving of their enemies, as God moved this man into place, one of the things that, that Catholics began arguing for was the consent of the governed. Since they began using, Catholics did, the arguments that, that the Protestants had developed by looking at the Bible. And they began using it. We need to be able to consent. What if he changes things? We need to be able to consent. And, and it's, it's a terrible thing to watch uh, that the Huguenots began distancing themselves from the Vindicii. They had written this book, this amazing book that, that has affected the world. And in the same generation, that same generation started saying, no, no, no. Uh, they were embarrassed of the arguments and, and they were embarrassed of their Bible studies when it became inconvenient for where providence was taking them. Make sense? And you begin seeing these arguments that, 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 well, actually, that had once been used against them. Well, the king doesn't need your consent, that, that you just need to submit. Doesn't Romans 13 just say he's in authority? Just do what he says. And so it just became a straight power problem. And all the Huguenots just started being embarrassed at the Vindicia. We were wrong when we wrote that. We were wrong when we looked at the Bible and found that out. And it was a complete reversal in the same generation. And so you get these, these published and loud documents of unfaithfulness saying, no, no, if he becomes a king, you just need to do what he says, too bad for your conscience. And so when Henry, uh, who had refused to renounce his faith at every point up to that moment in the wars of religion, uh, then finally decided to go unfaithful, it's because his people had been doing it long before that. And in the end, he said, you might know, well, Paris is worth a mass. You know, Paris is worth a mass. It's... Much of what has followed in France comes from that Protestant king's unfaithfulness and from 
that Protestant people's unfaithfulness. But note, it starts with the people's unfaithfulness for truths they had come to see in Scripture. I mean, if you only listen to the Bible, if you only love your heritage when it is convenient for you, well, look what happened to France. You can't use arguments when you're the underdog and then God starts putting you on top and say, oh, those arguments don't apply anymore because now we're getting the power. You can't do it. In the end, it was not the soil, therefore, of France, but the soil of England that had to nurture the seeds given to the church in France. And I think we'll talk about that tonight. But notice right now, in all of it, the, dis- the, the danger of distancing yourself from your biblical heritage. Uh, your, your heritage needs to, to rule you, uh, even when God starts letting you win. When, when, the pro- the, when the advantages seem so good and it would just be so nice to just get past the difficulties of buying your doctrines. Well, I'm going to explain more of that in a little bit, so uh, let's pray and I don't know what's next, but we'll finish. Father, thank you so much for this. And Father, um, these things that are true and these things that can apply to our time, give us ears to understand. And Father, uh, I pray that these, uh, these, oh, this heritage that we got from the Huguenots, uh, from looking at Exodus, from understanding your word, would be things we would appreciate. And in all this, may we come to know them. And more than that, would we come to defend them. In Jesus' name, amen.